The scripture reading for this morning is from Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses. An altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Righteous God, Lord of heaven and Lord of earth, I pray that you would rise up now and let your enemies be scattered, and I pray that you would gather to yourself the glory that is due to your name. And I pray that you would outfit us for war in the kingdom, O God. We do have an adversary, the devil, who is prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But you have commanded us to resist him firm in our faith, knowing that these same kinds of sufferings are being endured by our brotherhood throughout the world. And you have said that when we've suffered a little while, that you yourself, who have promised us eternal glory in Christ, that you would restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us, and we believe you in that. And so all dominion be to you forever and ever, and mighty King of heaven and earth, I pray that you would rise now and equip your people for this war, and I thank you for what you'll do, Lord Jesus. In your great name we pray, amen. Obedience matters. That's the sermon in a word, two words. Obedience matters matters. When God revealed his glory to Moses, you'll remember that he spoke those words that have echoed through the canyons of time and shaped our image of who God is, and rightly so. When God revealed his glory, he said these words. He said, I am the Lord, the Lord. I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And through the centuries, God has demonstrated the reality of those words by pouring his grace on one person after another in one situation after another. Those words, beloved, are not theoretical words. Our God is a God of grace and mercy. He is slow to anger. He is overflowing in love. Those are not simply words. They are reality. But the people of God should not presume upon the grace of God and think that our obedience is irrelevant because our obedience is not irrelevant. 
the experience of the blessings of God actually hinges in part on whether or not we submit our lives to God. When we submit ourselves to God, we come under the shadow of His wings. In just a few weeks in our memory program, we'll be memorizing Psalm 91. Psalm 91. And there it talks about coming under the shelter of God's wings. And when we obey His commands, it's like we come under the shelter of His wings and we learn by His grace to taste victory in the kingdom of God. But when we disobey His commands, essentially what we do is we walk out from under the shelter of our Father's wings and we strike out on our own and we live by our own strength and our own energy, our own prowess, our own wisdom, and we doom ourselves to defeat eventually to one extent or another. Obedience does not make or break our relationship with God, but it has much to do with the blessing of God come down upon His people. Obedience matters. That's what today's message is all about. We should not presume upon the grace of God. It had been an amazing couple of weeks for the people of Israel. You remember that Moses, the great man of God, had died and Joshua, his right-hand man, had risen to power over Israel because God appointed him to that task. He did not put himself in that place. God put him in that place. And then God visited Joshua And you'll remember he gave him three specific bits of wisdom for how to carry out his leadership over the people of Israel. Three things. Number one, he said, Joshua, I want you to fix your eyes on me by saturating your mind with my word. I want you to meditate upon it. Think about it every day, every night. Number two, as I give you insight into the word, I want you to obey that word. I want you, Joshua, to be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. The blessing will be in the doing. So number three, if you will fix your eyes and submit your life, I will lead you into the victory that I've already prepared for you. So God showed Joshua the path to success. Fix your eyes on me, submit your life to me, enter into my success. This was the command of God upon the life of Joshua at that time and indeed upon all of his people. And in obedience to God's command, Joshua told the people to rise up and go across the Jordan River. You'll remember from last week. And as he did that, God displayed his miracle power by holding back a raging river so that one million and a half or or two million people could go across on dry land. It was an amazing day. And after they crossed, the river closed behind them and the people in the land obeyed the command of the Lord and they took the sign of the covenant on their body in accordance with the word of the Lord. And they celebrated the Passover in the promised land in accordance with the word of the Lord. And they tasted the fruit of the land in accordance with the promises of the Lord. And on that day, the manna that had dropped from heaven for 40 years stopped according to the promises of the Lord. And then you'll remember that Joshua was visited by the commander of the army of God who manifested from heaven and assured him that God was with him and God was with the people. It had been an amazing couple of weeks. I'll tell you, if I was there, I would have had my journal out and I would have been writing feverishly because there was a lot going on in those days. This brings us to Joshua chapter 6. If you'll please turn there with me, we'll be working our way through the end of chapter 8 today. And along the way, we're going to see that obedience matters. We're going to see that submission to God 
is the path to victory in the kingdom of God. And really, there's no other way. The city of Jericho was surrounded by very high and very thick walls. And the people there were afraid of Israel, and so they shut themselves in very tightly so no one could go out of the city, no one could go into the city. Forty years earlier, a city very much like this struck fear into the hearts of the spies of Israel. They went into the land and they spied it out and they saw these cities with huge walls and they came back to Joshua and the others and said, there's no way that we can take these cities. We've never seen anything like that. We, we have no idea how to come against a city that's protected by walls. We cannot do it. And they were filled with fear. And so what does God do? When he brings his people into the promised land, the very first city that he commands them to take is surrounded by what? It's surrounded by walls. It's surrounded by the very thing that they feared. And isn't that like our Father? He loves to lead us to look head on, square on, into the face of our worst enemy so that he can teach us the lesson that greater is he who is in us than anything that is in the world. Amen? God did this on purpose. God knew exactly what he was doing. He led them to a city with walls to teach them a lesson. Despite their fears, the Lord said to Joshua, Joshua, I assure you, I have given you this city. Forget the walls. I am the Lord, and I have given you the city, and I have given you its king, and so here's what I want you to do. Now, let me just pause here to say that the Lord's tactics are not normal military tactics. Yes? You would not have learned this in any military academy on the face of the earth. You wouldn't have learned the ways of the Lord in a military book that teaches you how to fight against a walled city. I have read ancient documents that say, here are the seven ways you can take a walled city. God's tactics were not in that book. God's tactics were not taught by anyone in any place, but beyond all expectations, God said to Joshua, here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather warriors and priests and march around the city once a day for six days. To be more specific, here's how it looked. In the front, there was an armed guard of warriors who led the way. And then behind them, there were the priests, and the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And also, they had seven horns made of ram's horns, and God told them to blow those trumpets the whole way as they marched around the city. And then behind them was a rear guard of armed warriors who were protecting the way. And Joshua was to take this band of warriors and priests and march them all the way around the city once a day for six days. The priests blowing the trumpets and the warriors remaining strangely silent. I wondered this week of what it would be like to be inside the city of Jericho and see these mighty men of God and warriors walking around the city and not saying a word seemed to me that that would strike more fear into my heart than if they were saying words. God commanded them, blow the trumpet of praise, but otherwise be silent. And they did that. And then on the seventh day, God said, I want you to march around the city seven times. And on the last time, I want the priest to make a long trumpet blast. And at that time, you shout with a great shout, and I will cause the walls to come tumbling down. As I said, this is not a conventional military tactic, yes? I don't know of another city on the earth that's been taken like this. And I want to just pause here to point out to you that Joshua is not making these tactics up. 
I want to help you see that the book of Joshua is about the obedience of a man who won his victories via obedience to God. God had commanded Joshua, saturate your mind with my word and do everything I tell you to do. And he was doing that. And then when he came across situations for which there was no specific instruction in the Bible as to what he should do, he sought God until he heard a word from God. And once he got clear instruction from God, he obeyed that instruction. This story is the story of a man being obedient to God. It's a clarion call that obedience matters. And that the path to victory in the kingdom is submission to the King, the Lord God Almighty. And so, armed with wisdom from God, Joshua commanded the priests and the warriors to do as God had instructed, and they did. They marched around the city for six days, blowing the trumpets, but otherwise remaining silent. And then on the seventh day, they rose up very early in the morning, and they marched around that city seven times, blowing the trumpets with the warriors remaining silent. And at the end of the seventh lap, Joshua shouted out and commanded the warriors to give out a great shout because he said, God has given you the city. God has done it. Now sometime before this trumpet blast, Joshua had told the warriors in no uncertain terms to devote the entire city to destruction. He said, destroy it and leave nothing left. Please look at me at chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, and I want to encourage you to pay close attention to these words because they set up the rest of what's coming in chapter 6, 7, and 8. They're very important words. Chapter 6, verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. In other words, it becomes the property of the Lord and the Lord says, destroy it. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, warriors, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take away any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord." So let me make sure that we understand the command here. It's very important. It sets up the rest of these next three chapters. God is telling them in no uncertain terms that if any one person in the nation of Israel, any single individual warrior, takes any single thing from the city of Jericho and keeps it for himself, that that warrior brings the wrath of God upon the whole entire nation. So I hope this is clear. One person sins, wrath comes upon the whole nation. God is not being vague in these commands, is He? He's being very clear. If you were a warrior standing on the hill that day, you would have understood, okay, here's my job. Destroy the city, take nothing. God says, if I take something for myself, I will bring wrath upon all the people, so I'm not going to take anything. This was exceedingly abundantly clear. Keep that in mind. That's going to become really, really important here in a few moments. 
This command was very serious and the people understood it well, so the priest blew the horn and Joshua gave the command and the warriors gave the shout and by the grace and the power of God, the walls came tumbling down on themselves. Those walls that, Jer- that the people of Israel had feared for so long were destroyed by nothing more than the command of God and the shout of warriors. And oh, what rejoicing there was in that moment. So the warriors rushed the city and did exactly what they were told. They destroyed it. They took the precious metals and put it into the treasury of the Lord. They spared Rahab and her family. They burned the place to the ground. Joshua cursed the person who would rebuild the walls of that city. And God blessed Joshua in the sight of the people and exalted him as a godly leader over the people. Beloved, this was a time for great rejoicing in Israel. This was a time for rejoicing that's probably hard for us to understand. Not only had God stopped up a river in their sight over the last few weeks, but now he destroyed a city in their eyes that they thought for decades, honestly, would get the best of them. And so surely in those moments their praise was loud and their joy in God was high and their hope in God was palpable and the future looked very, very, very bright to the people of Israel. I'm sure... They were filled with faith. But if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, you'll see that sadly, all was not well within the camp of God. The majority of the warriors had obeyed the word of the Lord, but the Lord said that Israel broke faith with him because one of the warriors, one of the warriors, Achan, took some of the devoted things. This was in violation of the commands of God, and so the, the anger of God burned against the entire nation of Israel. And you may think that that's unjust, but remember how clear God was in his commands. If any one of you sins in this way, you will be, bring wrath upon the whole nation. And one person decided to do this, and God was now very angry with his people. Joshua, however, was clueless about what had happened, and so he sent spies into the next city, into a city called Ai. And those spies came back. I think they were filled with faith. And they said, Joshua, it's not a very big city, so we think that you could send a small strike force of about two or 3,000 soldiers, and they can take the city by the power of God. And so Joshua obeyed their, their, their advice, and he sent 3,000 warriors to take that city, but unexpectedly they were beaten back and 36 troops died on the battlefield that day. This turn of events greatly discouraged the people of Israel because they had thought that God would lead them to wipe away all the enemies in the promised land and now this little tiny city has dealt them a blow and they didn't know what to do. And so Joshua and the other leaders of Israel literally threw their bodies before the Ark of the Covenant of God and they cried out to him and they asked him what in the world was going on. But God rebuked Joshua and he told him to stand up because he said, Joshua, I am not the problem here. I did not break the covenant here. What has happened, Joshua, is that Israel has stolen, they have lied, and they have broken faith with me. They have brought my wrath upon them. Their disobedience is why they were unable to stand up against the enemies of God. Oh, believe me when I say, beloved, obedience really matters. And so God said that the people were to cleanse themselves because the next day he would bring them all before him 
and he would execute justice and judgment upon the offender and upon his household. True to his word, that's exactly what God did. He brought the nation before him on the next day, one tribe at a time. And through a long process, they selected a particular tribe, and then out of that tribe, they selected a clan, and then out of that clan, they selected a household, and then out of that household, they selected a man, and that man's name was Achan. And so God confronted him with his sin. You'll see in chapter 7, verses 19 and following, that Joshua commanded Achan and said, Give glory to God, my son. Another way you could translate that is confess your sin, my son. And that's exactly what Achan did. He came clean. And he said, yes, I I have sinned. I stole a cloak that was valuable. I stole 200 shekels of silver. And I stole a bar of gold. And then I went into my my tent and I dug a hole underneath the floor of my tent and I hid them there and I tried to cover it over with my tent. But evidently, I was unable to hide this from God. That cloak, beloved, according to the word of God, was supposed to be destroyed. It wasn't supposed to be kept for anybody for any reason. Those precious metals, if you'll remember right, were supposed to be devoted to the treasury of the Lord. So Achan essentially walked into the Holy of Holies and stole gold and silver from God. That's what he did. This was a grievous offense. Can you imagine even walking into the Holy of Holies, just walking in there? He essentially walked in there and stole from God, and he impugned the people of God and brought his wrath upon the people. And for what, really? For what? Joshua sent messengers to retrieve these things from Achan's tent, which they did, and they put them before the Lord. And then they led Achan and his family to a place called the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. And as a man of God and as the leader of Israel, Joshua pronounced judgment upon Achan and upon his family. And Israel, there in the valley of trouble, stoned him and his entire family to death. Now you may think that that is extreme or that is an unjust punishment, but I want to suggest to you that it's neither extreme nor unjust. I want to point out three things here. First of all, remember that God said... If any one of you steals a thing and brings it into Israel, the whole entire nation will be liable to destruction. Now, what did that mean? That meant that the whole entire nation was liable to death. God was saying, if you take anything from Jericho, you're going to become like Jericho, and I will kill the whole nation. So I, I want us to see that in God only taking the life of Achan and his household, he's showing amazing restraint. He's showing incredible patience. By his own word, he had every right to take the lives of the nation, but he spared them all except for this one family. So the death of Achan is really a demonstration of the grace of God, not the injustice of God. It's certainly not extreme. It's quite the opposite. Secondly, Since Achan had hidden these things under the floor of his tent, just think this through with me. You're living in his tent with him. Do you really think he could do that without your knowledge? Some of you are going camping or you've already been camping. Would it be easy to bury something under the middle of the floor of your tent without people knowing about it? His household had to have been in the know. And they conspired with him to hide these things from God. God does not condemn innocent people. 
And so I believe that his household conspired with him, and so they all died for their own sin, not necessarily only for Achan's sin. Third of all, in other situations that had transpired in the past and would transpire in the future, God was very gracious and forgave people like Achan their sins and did not pronounce this kind of judgment upon them. But I believe that early in the life of Israel, as they're going into the promised land to take it, God needed to send a message to them. He needed them to understand that His holiness was serious and that his being was not to be taken lightly, and that his words were to be obeyed. When God said, devote the city to destruction, he meant it. And if he didn't teach the people that right there at the beginning, it was going to mean trouble, trouble, trouble for his people for many months and years to come. So at the beginning, God disciplines the few in order to train the many. He's being a gracious father. He's being a a gracious God. Beloved, obedience really matters. It matters. And submission to God is the path to victory in the kingdom of God. When we violate this principle, we pay the price. We pay the price. By His grace, God accepted the deaths of Achan and his household as acceptable, and He let His anger be turned away from Israel. He didn't have to do that, but He did. This leads us to chapter 8. And you'll see there that now that this is behind them, the Lord encouraged Joshua. He came near to him and said, Joshua, don't be afraid, my son. But I want you to go take the city of Ai, because I've given you the city and I've given you its king. And as you did at Jericho, I want you to devote the whole thing to destruction. Only this time, you can keep the spoils for yourself and you can keep the livestock for yourself. And so at the command of God, not the imaginings of his mind, Joshua went up against the city of Ai with 30,000 fighting men, ten times what he had brought with him before. And he took a different tactic this time against this city, and again he did it at the command of God. The Lord, you can read it in chapter 8, the Lord told him specifically how to take the city. He took 5,000 men, set them in ambush behind the city at night. With the other 25,000 men, he made a frontal assault against the city. The warriors of Ai saw this, and in their remembrance of the previous battle, they were brave, so they came out against Joshua and his warriors. Joshua fled as it was before, so the warriors of Ai were drawn out of the city, and just as they were completely out of the city, God told Joshua, now turn around and stretch out your javelin toward the city, which Joshua did in obedience to the commands of God. And when Joshua did that, it signaled the other warriors who were lying in wait to rise up, and they did, and they took the city. They had been commanded to set it on fire, and when Joshua saw the smoke of the city rising into the sky like a burnt offering to God, he knew it was time, and he commanded the other troops, turn back now, turn back and fight. And the men of Ai were caught between the warriors in the field and the warriors in the city. And in this way, Israel destroyed 12,000 troops on that day. And other citizens of Ai, they only spared the king and they brought him before Joshua. Probably to make an example of the king, Joshua hung him on a tree all the way until nighttime. And then at that time, he took him off the tree and they buried him under a large pile of stones that the Bible says remained there for a long time. For a long time. Kimmy, this is a pile of stones you might not have thought about in your, in your study of how God uses stones and altars and memorials. 
But I believe that this pile of stones was a kind of memorial that reminded the people of Israel that obedience matters. And the way you take a city is by submitting yourselves to God. Submission to God is the path to victory in the kingdom of God. There is no other way. I believe that for decades and maybe centuries, that pile of rocks stood there as a witness to the fact. In fact, I believe that to this day, the stories of Jericho and Ai and Achan are a testament to the same thing. Obedience matters. It really matters. And the way we get victory in the kingdom of God is by submitting to the commandments of God. There is no other way, my friends. Now that Israel had made its first forays into the land, Joshua further obeyed the word of the Lord through Moses, and he built an altar up on Mount Ebal, and he offered burnt offerings there. And in accordance with the word of God, he put up these huge stones and plastered them. And on the stones, he wrote the entire word of the law of Moses, every word of it. And he took some of the tribes of Israel and he placed them on Mount Ebal. And he took others of the tribes and placed them on the opposing mountain, Mount Gerizim. And in accordance with the word of God, Joshua read the entire law of Moses in the hearing of men, women, children, and sojourners just as God had commanded. And beloved, what we're supposed to take from those little verses at the end of chapter 8, 30 through 35, is that Joshua was an obedient man of God. He had read the law. And in the law of Moses, they were required to do exactly what Joshua just did. So God is like saying, people, get the point. Joshua, listen to me. He fixed his eyes on me by saturating his mind with my word, and then he did what I told him to do. And because of that, he was winning victory after victory. Obedience matters, and submission to God is the path to victory in the kingdom of God. I believe with all my heart, beloved, that that's what these stories are about, and that's the lesson for us today. Now I want to ask the question here in closing. Let's take a couple more minutes and ask how all this relates to us, especially in light of Jesus Christ. Let me just rehearse the gospel for us and sort of apply it point by point. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ walked this earth, and he accomplished many things, but three of them I want to highlight now. First thing is that Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, which means that he obeyed every single command of God without flaw, without blemish. He was perfectly obedient before God. And now, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are clothed with him, as it were, and his obedience counts toward our account. God looks at us as though we, too, have obeyed every command he has given. Now, to be clear, we have not obeyed the commands of God in perfection. Amen? Anybody want to say you've obeyed the commands of God in perfection? I doubt that you will. If you're brave enough, we can debate it later, perhaps. But I think we're all humble enough to say, no, I have not done that. I have broken the commands of God. The idea here is that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And in this way, he's leading us into a victory we could never gain for ourselves. His obedience becomes our obedience in as we believe in him. Second thing, Jesus Christ died a horrible death on a cross. He spilled all of his blood, and he was pronounced dead and buried in a grave. 
The reason Jesus died was not because he sinned and he was paying the price for his sin. The reason Jesus died is because we have sinned and he was paying the price for our sins. Like Achan, we have all broken the commands of God. And like Achan, we have all tried to hide our sin underneath the floor of our tents in one way or another. But like Achan, God was not fooled and our sin has been found out. And like Achan, God demands a price for our sins and He will not take anything else. There's no debating here. He is the judge. Unlike Achan, Jesus Christ came for us to pay a price that we could never pay. The price God demanded for us was too high. And so in His grace, Christ took on flesh and took our punishment upon Him. I should have been on that cross. I should have been like Achan, stoned to death with my whole household. You should have been on that cross. But Jesus paid for you out of the mercy in his heart what you could never pay for yourself. And now when you believe in him, his payment goes toward your account and you are forgiven before God. Forgiven before God. Satan has no more evidence against you because Jesus has wiped it away through belief in him. Third thing, Jesus Christ doesn't like graves very much. Praise God. And he raised from the dead. He was only three days in his grave and then he conquered death. And now when we believe in him, the Bible says that we are united with him and we come to life in him and we will live with him forever and ever. The Bible says that when he returns again and we'll see him all throughout the sky, that the dead will raise the evil, the wicked to eternal judgment and the righteous, those who have believed in him into eternal life. We've been united with him and so instead of dying for our sins, we now live forever and ever because of what he did. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's what the gospel is all about. So believe Believe, believe in Him. Now in that context, obedience for us who believe in Jesus, obedience still matters. But it matters in a particular way. So I put this up on the screen for you. You can flip in your Bibles if you want. I just want to look at Philippians chapter 2 with you real quick. Two verses and then we'll be done. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always, what? Obeyed as you have always obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Beloved, Paul is not being theoretical here. He is calling on believers to submit their lives to God and to walk in obedience to God. He's calling us to be intentional and intense about following Jesus Christ. He wants us to go all the way. He does not want us to follow Jesus halfway. He wants us to sell out and give it all up to Jesus and let Him do His work in us. Indeed, even for the Christian, obedience matters. But look at the next verse though. You all do this because it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. What does that mean? Paul is saying to us, Beloved, you do it because God is doing it in you. You obey God because by the Spirit of God, 
He's giving you the desire to want to obey him. And he's giving you the power to actually obey him. So yes, the command remains, obey the Lord. Obedience matters. But by the Holy Spirit, God is doing in us what we could never do for ourselves. Beloved, my life is so far from where I want it to be in Christ, but I will tell you, I woke up this morning eager to obey God. I really did. I'm being honest with you. My first waking thought at about 5.46 this morning, as I remember the clock, was, oh God, I want to do your will today. Why did I think that? Well, the Spirit of God made me want to. And then I woke up and he gave me the power I needed to open his word before I touched my computer and to go before God and to throw myself on the mercy of the court and say, oh, Father, forgive my sins and fill me with the Spirit and use me this day to the glory of your name and the good of other people. So, yes, obey him because he is causing you to obey him. Oh, how I pray that God will give us the ears to hear this call. Obedience really matters for us, beloved, but for the Christian, I think it comes down to one word for us, just one word, and the word I would choose is surrender, surrender. I don't have to do a bunch of stuff to make myself pleasing to God. I just surrender myself to God, and He causes me to want what He wants, and He gives me the power to do what He wants. So that's the word for today, surrender yourselves to God. Submission to him is the only way to have victory in him. Some of you are fighting battles, the battles of your life, and you're wondering, how am I ever going to win? And I'm going to tell you, the way you're going to win is by surrendering to your Father and letting him win in you and through you. You cannot do it on your own. You do not have the power, but he's got all that you need. So surrender to him. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for the Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword that cuts through bones and marrow and, and, and reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I thank you for your Word that does not play with the surfacey things, but that gets down to the heart of things and shows us what really is. And I thank you for the grace in your heart that only reveals in order to transform Father, you cut us open like a master surgeon that you might bring us to a place of, place of health and peace with you. And so how I thank you. And I pray that you would use your word like a surgeon's scalpel today and operate on us, Jesus. Bring us to that place where we're closer to the image of you and teach us the beauty of obedience. Teach us the beauty of heartfelt surrender to you. And I ask you to come and do Philippians 2, 12 through 13 in our lives, oh Father. Please teach us what this means. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to both will and to work according to his good pleasure. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that I ask it. Amen.